I've always been the type of person that can enjoy doing many different things. And so I've explored, I've just tried different things until I found the thing that I really was passionate about. And in my first business, that was awesome because I got to deal with cutting edge new AI technology and building stuff that no one else was building. It was amazing. I just really loved that practical application of technology, which you don't really get in research. I wanted to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading data specialist recruitment business. They are experts in recruitment strategy and delivery for analytics and data teams. They are the go-to recruitment business for all your data roles in Australia, and they can help both with permanent hires and short-term project-focused data resources. I've used Talent Insights in the past, and I've always found them fantastic to work with. Visit them at talentinsights.com.au. Introducing an exclusive new webinar series on advancing AI. It's available only online. It won't be released through the podcast, but you can join live to these webinars. So join us over breakfast from February to April by signing up in the link in the show notes. We will be interviewing leaders in the data and AI space. They will guide you through the hype and maze of technology to achieve the business transformation we all want from AI. Whether you're looking to leverage AI to optimize the customer experience or to improve your business operations, this series underpins the core elements crucial to your company's AI strategy. Featuring guests from around the globe, including people from companies like NAB, Finair, Woodside, etc. Check out the schedule, sign up through the link in the show notes or visit datafuturology.com for more information. I'm super excited to bring you this new series. Hope to see you there. Hi, I'm Felipe Flores. Welcome to another episode of Data Futurology. This morning, we have Dr. Michelle Perugini. She is CEO of two very exciting companies. Uh, Her background is amazing, and she's one of the most prominent people in AI in Australia. So today, we're very lucky to have Michelle joining us on the show. Very excited to have a chat with you. How are you feeling this morning, Michelle? I'm feeling great. I have my morning coffee. This is my ritual. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks for having me on. It's really great to speak to you today. Oh, no, I'm so excited. And um, I, I first wanted to, uh, to ask you if, uh, about your, your background, if you can kick us off with an origin story. Obviously, I saw that, you know, you've been in, in healthcare uh, since your studies. You did a PhD you've um, been in academia, you've uh, been in research, you've um, uh, been in consulting. Uh, so your, your, um, your background is incredible. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about, about your, your origin story? Yeah, of course. Um, I don't feel old enough to have done all of those things, by the way. That's good. <laughs> Am I really that old? Come on, this is terrible. Um, no, look, it's been, a, I've had a really interesting career. So I started off in a very purist um, medical science kind of research role, did my PhD through uni- uh, University of Adelaide Department of Medicine, and then I spent around a decade in step cell biology and um, mainly in the cancer space, looking at really cool data analytics approaches to identifying new gene mutations that could predict response to new treatments or diseases. Um, really cool space, I loved it. So I had a little research group there and, um, and enjoyed being in the lab and writing my grant applications. And then in 2007, I decided to start a company, which was pretty crazy. Um, and I did that with my partner who was ex-Department of Defence. 
and he had this big aspiration to take some of the work that he was doing in the AI from defence out into into the commercial um, arena and have it kind of publicly accessible. So we started a company called ISD Analytics in 2007 and that was a really interesting journey for us. Um, pretty much bumbled our way through for the first few years. We had no idea what we were doing. Um, probably a good thing actually that we had no idea what we were doing at that point. Um, and then we, we made a success of that company. We worked in six different industries all around the world. We operated out of Silicon Valley and Australia and eventually sold that company to EY in 2015. Um, and that's when I kind of had a little taste of the consulting world. Um, it was, yeah, it was a really amazing journey. We moved to EY, um, stayed there for about a year and a half consulting was not really my thing. I really enjoyed the idea of bringing kind of from idea through to global product and commercialising technology. That's that's kind of where my passion grew. And so in um, 2016, met our third co-founder, Jonathan, who was doing, of all things, a second PhD in nanotechnology for embryos. Such a random meeting, but I was mentoring him. And he came up with this idea about non-invasive embryo assessment. And so that's what ended up being the genesis of the idea for Preston. And Preston's our company today, which I can talk about after that very lengthy um, intro. Oh, that is that is amazing. Um, and your I, I am yeah, I'm so impressed so impressed with your with your background uh, and all your accomplishments. It's incredible. What um how how did you discover your your passion for the for the product side for creating products and and creating businesses and sort of bringing together I guess different parts of, of healthcare and um, and I ask because uh, I know that a lot of a lot of the audience as they think through their their career uh, sometimes they see that every option they don't they don't know how to separate the different options and and I know that a lot of people are very attracted to consulting, for example, but consulting is obviously not for, for everyone. Uh, so what, what were some of the things that helped you find your path and, um, and focus on the direction of, of the creating products on the entrepreneurship side within this healthcare space? It's just my personality. I just, I've always been the type of person that's really, that can enjoy doing many different things. And so I've explored, I've just tried different things until I found the thing that I really was passionate about. And in my first business, that was um, that was awesome because I got to deal with cutting edge new AI technology and building stuff that no one else was building. It was amazing. I just really loved that practical application of technology, which you don't really get in research um, yes. because research is really interesting from a different perspective where you're identifying new you, you know, new knowledge and new science, but rarely does it actually result in a direct kind of usage out um, in the public domain. So I just really love that. And then when I had the opportunity to start Prestigen in 2017, started 2017, it was just this amazing opportunity to combine my passion for healthcare with the technology side that I've been developing. And um, yeah, it's just a really amazing company that's doing things that actually change people's lives. So it's, yeah, I, I can't, I can't, you can't prescribe the path. All you yeah. can do is try different things until you find what you're really passionate about. And I feel really sad for people who sometimes get stuck in one path. And I, I can totally see how it happens because right. I think if I didn't just happen to have that opportunity, 
I may never have taken that step and I would have missed out on this amazing, um, you know, amazing career path that I've been able to able to have. I'm really passionate about it. So that's so true. Yeah, it can definitely happen that people get stuck. So definitely try 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 different things and and um, work. I would say work on the self awareness that it, it seems like that you have that when when you're passionate about something. It, you, you really sense it, you really feel it, and, and then you double down on that, which obviously takes a lot of courage. Um, so I wanted to ask you about your, when you were going to start your first business, um, obviously that was your, your first business experience. Uh, how about for your partner? Uh, had he been in business before? Was it new, completely, completely for both of you? Amazing. Actually, I actually said to him, I think you need to do something different because you're very ambitious and like working in defense is sort of, it's a great job, but it was a very one-track kind of career. Yes. And he he was like, all right, I've, I've decided this was after some time, obviously, thinking he's like, you know, I really want to do this. I want to build a business. And I'm like, wow, okay, that's not at all what I was expecting. <laughs> um, but, you know, we were young and we had no commitments. We didn't have a family and we thought, well, why not? Like, if you're going to do it, then we might as well do it now. And so we did. And it wasn't as big a jump as you might imagine. I actually stayed in my research career for, uh, it was around five or six years, oh, no, nearly nearly 10 years during that process as well. So it's kind of, you know, there's, there's different ways you can transition through and make it less of a scary jump, if that makes yes. sense. But, yes. yeah, it's really interesting. That's a that's a very very clever way to do it. Instead of the hard stop what you're doing before and then start the business, doing it always almost as a gradient. Um, that's that's really good, really really good. And um, what were some of the lessons that that experience taught you that then you brought to Presagen? So many, everything, life experiences, resilience, persistence. Oh. It's it's really it's really hard when you do it for the first time around because. The fear of the unknown and you just have nothing to compare your experience against so you have no idea whether you're doing amazingly well or kind of just okay in the grand scheme of things I think that's the really hard bit you um, you just don't have a benchmark to work against so I think what's happened is now that I've um, started question with that experience behind me. I've just got this confidence that I've never had before. I know exactly where I'm going. I know how to get there. I know how, I know when things are bad, it's a temporary situation. I know how to overcome those challenges that I've experienced before and how to deal with new challenges much better. So I think it's just, it's just the experience. You can't buy that experience of living through it. Um, which is why I, I just I'm so grateful for that initial opportunity. Um, even though we did heaps of things, you know, terribly wrong that we would never do again. That's the only way you learn, right? Yeah. So now we've got the opportunity to take those learnings into this company and make it a raging global success, which it will be. And Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and tell me, tell me a little bit about the the journey of uh, Presagen and how um, yeah, how was it at the beginning and how has the, the last about three years been for you guys? Yeah, Preston's a really interesting company. We've got a very unique global first approach. So although we're in Australia, um, one of the unique things about the AI technology that we've built is we've built it with a global first um, paradigm. And 
all of our, so basically we're a healthcare company. We focus in women's health, so we've very heavily doubled down on the femtech sector and we can talk a little bit about why that is later. Um, but we're both a platform and a product company. So mm-hmm. our platform is a really unique AI platform that helps us build scalable AI medical products. We call it our AI factory. So we kind of got a factory and we've got a production line of different AI medical products that we build through that research and commercialisation. And then our first product is Life Whisperer. And Life Whisperer is using AI for embryo selection during the IVF process. So instead of having a an embryologist looking down a microscope at your embryos and making a visual assessment, they now have the ability to use AI as part of that decision process to help them find things in those embryos that relate to whether you're going to get a pregnancy or not, um, things that you can't even see with the human eye. So that's kind of what the company does. And we have three co-founders, Jonathan, um, Don and myself. So Don and myself obviously have the previous company together. But Jonathan's um, an amazing co-founder, is highly technically skilled, um, has two PhDs, which is crazy. We always joke about it. Um, in the office, one of them very specifically in the embryology space, but also one in theoretical physics. He's just an amazing, um, yeah, he's, he's crazy. So, and yeah, it's just been an amazing experience. We've learned so much. It's a highly regulated industry, which is very challenging from a data perspective. And if you think about what we're doing, we're collecting data sets from all across the world that are distributed in different clinical environments in the context of data privacy laws globally where you can't move that data. So what we've done is we've built really unique technology that allows us to send our AI out to those different data sources, um, learn from them without ever moving the data. Um, Now that sounds simple, it's not. Um, There's around five patents that underpin that platform that allows us to do that. Um, And we've also got a really unique kind of clinic-centric model where we work with clinics to build products for clinics. So although we own the IP and the commercialisation pipeline, we we collaborate with clinics so that they embed their expertise and their knowledge and their data into the products. And then we give them royalties and the products are successful out. Oh, wow. So really unique collaborative model, really unique platform, and then a very unique sort of first product in the fertility sector. That's incredible. Um, really, really interesting. So definitely, like the the security aspect, uh, the the uh, AI. Well, I would say the the platform and the the AI, and then the business model, having innovation across all three, it would be a lot of work. <laughs> we don't do anything in parts. <laughs> go big or go home. That's the um, that's the idea. <laughs> I, I love it. I, I love it. And. Was there, was there, I guess, maybe looking back, was there a, an order in which these innovations were first ideated um, or uh, how, how did it come about? Did you, did you start with these grand plans or was it something that you sort of iterated through and, and found that it was the best approach for you guys uh, to, to be able to live up to your ambitions? A little bit of both. I always had the ambition of a healthcare platform. Um, so that was kind of a much bigger thing than we could manage at the time with a very small team. And then when we met Jonathan, it was kind of when he had this concept around the non-invasive embryo assessment, it was just the perfect combination of sort of our AI healthcare background and his computer vision embryology background. And we thought, well, that would be a great first application. And sometimes you're better off solving 
a first very well-defined application area before you kind of go for the big um, platform approach because it gives kind of brand and leverage to that platform and gives demonstration of the capability. So that was sort of developed um, alongside each other in parallel, but the, um, the fertility product was a big focus for us initially because we knew that that would be really interesting to the market and we knew we had first mover advantage, so we wanted to take advantage of that. That's incredible. And, and what does, what does a, having and maintaining a first mover advantage, what does that look like for an AI company where, you know, many people would, th would be thinking that, um, the, that the, the techniques um, and the, the open source libraries, you know, have been uh, proliferated. There are hundreds of thousands of, of very smart people sort of pouring their, their knowledge into that. And um, so there, there must be an, an element of, of the data and an element of the relationships that the business holds. But, but I wanted to ask for, from your perspective, um, starting with a first mover advantage and being able to maintain it for, for three years, which in the AI space, I'm sure it feels like three decades. Um, how, how have you guys been able to, to do that? It's actually really difficult because, so what ends up happening is, you know, in this medical device space, the regulations are crazy. They're very different in every country that you go to. There's different regulatory approval process that needs to be done, different clinical testing, international clinical studies. This is not a software product. This is a product that is affecting clinical decisions that affect lives. Mm -hmm. So the regulators are very careful about what they approve in that space. But what happens when you're the first mover is, is quite a difficult barrier because you need to educate those regulators and you need to educate the industry. And so that can be quite difficult. It's definitely an advantage if you make it, um, but it can be really challenging being the first. And quite often it's disappointing because you pave the way and then all of a sudden you see all these, you know, all these other players behind you and you're like, wow, it's going to be so much easier for them to do this. <laughs> so, it, you know, it can be an advantage being a first mover, but it can also be a massive disadvantage. So, you know, I always, um, I'm not scared of comp competition. I think the whole idea is to really be careful about how you continuously add value to your products in the future. So for us in the fertility space, where we want to be the dominant AI player across the whole fertility process, right? So the embryo assessment is just one tiny part. We've already got a second product that's coming out at the start of next year around non-invasive genetic assessment of embryos. We're already working with wow. the Seattle-based clinical group around um, around oocyte assessment. We're working with a US-based clinic group around endometriosis detection. So there's, you know, for us, I think the way that you stay ahead and add value to the clinics and the, and the patients is by continuously improving and putting out other complementary products that, you know, as a whole really help them within their clinical environment. So that's, that's our approach to the first mover advantage. But other than that, it's just basically run as fast as you can. That's pretty much it. <laughs> I love it. And um, yes, definitely. Um, no, you're doing, doing amazing. So, uh, so tell me about the, uh, or for, I, should, I should ask actually, for the people that don't know, 
Tell me about the differences between uh, the, your non-invasive approach and, and the other approaches and, and how AI is used in, in, the, in, the non-invasive, in your non-invasive ways. Yeah, sure, sure. So what currently happens during the IVF process, if you're infertile, you need a process like IVF to have children. Um, the, you go into the clinic, they extract eggs from the female patient and then they fertilise them in a culture dish um, with sperm. And those fertilised eggs become embryos, which is kind of the first part of the baby, a few cells of the baby. And at a particular point in time in culture, it's about five days that they've been in that culture dish the um, doctor or the clinician has a decision to make about which of those embryos to transfer back to you and they can only pick one. Now, selecting that one embryo is critical to whether you achieve a pregnancy or not. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really big decision. And currently the way that they make that decision is looking at all the embryos down the microscope. And it's a visual assessment, it's quite subjective and it's limited to what the eye can see. Um, we're human, so we have limitations. We're not good at computing very complex patterns within images um, like a computer is. So what we've done is we've created an AI that's been trained on tens of thousands of historical embryo images where we know whether a pregnancy resulted or not. And the um, AI has learnt the very complex patterns and features of those embryo images that relate to a positive or a negative pregnancy. And so when it sees a new embryo, all out, and the system's so beautiful. It's a, it's a web-based application. The clinician literally can drag and drop images of the embryos onto the system. It takes about 15 seconds wow. to run the analysis. They get this beautiful patient report. They get a score for each embryo. It helps them to pick which one has the highest confidence, the highest likelihood of achieving a pregnancy. And it gets patients pregnant quicker. So it's just really simple, completely non-invasive. Um, so the other approach to embryo selection is genetic screening where they actually need to cut out part of the developing embryo for a biopsy. Um, highly invasive, but it's also very expensive for the patients. And so our second product is looking at non-invasive genetic assessment. Um, and we've already shown that we can detect serious genetic changes like Down syndrome just through the imaging of the embryos. So wow. it's really amazing what technology can do. Um, so yeah, it's it's non-invasive. No, it's very low cost for patients. No equipment, no hardware. Just what they're currently using in the clinic. Um, yeah, very simple. That's incredible. Um, the 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 advancements uh, and the and the way that you've been able to roll that out uh, to the clinics, uh, to the patients, to the specialists. It is it's phenomenal, and. And also, I don't, I don't know if, if most of all, maybe, maybe most of all, that you are focusing on helping people at such a stressful period of their time, uh, of their life, and, and something that's so, so important uh, for, for, for them. Um, and I, I know that in, in my case, I found out, you know, in the, in the last maybe five years or so how how common it is to to have fertility treatments uh, to go down IVF uh, I've had lots of friends who, who have had uh, IVF babies um, I know that my wife and I when when we were trying to get pregnant we went to see a fertility specialist and um, and we we almost went down the IVF uh, path I know people who have had multiple rounds of IVF and it's it's really 
taxing on on people that uh, that that period of their of their life and uh, to so to be able to bring technology into the world that makes it that makes it easier that's that's low cost uh, that can that is global uh, that's that's a fantastic uh, mission that that you guys have chosen um, yeah what okay. thank how, you <laughs> it's it's yeah no it's 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 incredible um, and. How how did you come to to um, focus on on that? Was there was there any um, uh, was there any personal incentive as well as the uh, sort of the the, the professional um, um, the professional opportunity and and the excitement of the change that you could make? Uh, did you have a a personal uh, motivator as well? I did have a personal motivator. I was a little bit like you. I um for for our first child was. It was very difficult for us to conceive, had no family history of infertility at all. So I had no reason for not being able to conceive. And then um, it took years, um, years of trying and we went through every fertility treatment other than IVF um, to, try and, to try and become pregnant. And I was actually booked in for my first IVF treatment and I got pregnant naturally. <laughs> Right. Treatment. So it was, um, fortunately, I didn't actually have to go through the full process, but it gave me an appreciation of that expectation of wanting a family and not being able to do that. And that's a really terrible burden for people to bear. Um, the IVF process is a wonderful thing for patients. I mean, there's around 200 million people worldwide that are infertile and will need to rely on technologies like IVF. So it's amazing technology. But I think what people don't realise is that process is very traumatic for patients. Um, it breaks up families. It's a really difficult process to go through because the expectation of bringing home a family and then having a failed cycle is really, really stressful. Um, it's a horrible process. So I think anything that can help patients get pregnant quicker through fewer cycles, help that process to be a little bit more data-driven and objective as opposed to the subjective process that currently is now is just is going to change the experience for those patients and it's going to change their lives. You know, it's, it's really fundamental to the outcome of that process. And I think one of the other things that we, we don't talk about enough is the transparency around the process. It's not a lot of transparency for patients. And the reason is, um, you know, although IVF is a very scientific process, it's not hugely data-driven. And it's so when patients come back after having a failed IVF cycle, there's not really a lot of information to give them about why. Um, and so if they do an assessment like Life Whisperer, even if the scores of their embryos are relatively low, it manages their expectation around the process. And that's really important. And for a lot of patients, they, I think that's the biggest challenge to overcome. They feel like there's this huge expectation and hope of them getting pregnant and then it doesn't happen and the fall is very big. Um, but if they if they know that they've got 
um, you know, three embryos and one of them's reasonable, two of them are not so good, it can help inform their decision about whether they go through another treatment cycle or whether they go ahead with one of those embryos, or at least that manages their expectations. So it's, yeah, I, I think it is a really terrible process and I am very driven from my own personal experience. But then I'm also driven from the science of it because stem cell biology that I was working in is, is basically the fundamental building blocks of, of you know, growing from that stem cell stage um, through to adult, adult cells. And it's just, it's just a really interesting biology problem as well. Incredible. That's great. And I will, I will remind people that we um, are taking questions through the Q&A section in, in Zoom. So put your questions in there um, on the bottom of your Zoom window. If you uh, scroll your mouse on top of that, that'll give you a pop-up that gives you the, the Q&A. And thanks, we already have questions coming in and we got comments coming in to the, um, in the chat as well. So on the chat, uh, William says that He's been down the IVF road and uh, he knows how nervous day five of the process is. It would have been uh, great to have amazing tech like this helping. Um, he's really, yeah, really impressed. And luckily the IVF technicians, uh, clinicians picked the right embryos and now they got twins. Ah, congrats. Oh, wow. Congratulations. <laughs> oh, that is great. And on the, on the Q and A, uh, we have a question from, from Phil. Hey, Phil, right. Um, he's asking, how did you get the label data for Down syndrome embryos? It must be a small sample size, question mark. Yeah, again, we've got this, um, we've got this global data collection platform, which we um, work with clinics all around the world. And so we've actually got a very large data set on that. You're right, the Down syndrome component is only a small part of that. But um, we've gone out for a global data collection through our clinic networks. Um, and so we have, uh, oh, I don't know how many data points we have now, but it would be close to 100,000. Um, so it's quite a lot. And the, the data is actually the embryo image as well as the um, genetics sequencing data um, from those embryos that have been biopsied and sequenced. So, yeah, we're very excited about that product. Oh, that's excellent. That is fantastic. And that's where I think the innovation around the business model that you guys have done uh, working so close in such a close partnership with the clinics and, and, um, and for them, for the clinic to have sort of skin in the game and have an incentive with through the, through your royalties, it, um, I, I assume that it has helped speed up the process uh, so much because the, the incentives are, are aligned and, and people can see that your um, that your motivations are are pure in, in, in a way that they're that they're aligned with the clinics and, and uh, so you don't try to force them onto your views but you you align with theirs and then they get uh, financial incentives as well as incentives for the patients um, so yeah I'm sure that that that, had, that really helps on scaling up to new products and being able to establish those type of partnerships with the data sharing is is um, done freely. Um, and we have a, a question with, from Balindran, which is uh, along the same line. So he says, building trust around an AI product is, is hard. Um, how did you go about initially building the traction and successfully build trust? The initial stages were very difficult. Very, very difficult because basically it's going to clinics without having any 
you know, any kind of company history and begging them for their data, um, trying to encourage them to contribute their expertise and help you build this thing. That was quite difficult. But what we did find is that there was a lot of interest in the space in AI. And I think to your point, Philippe, about the um, incentive model, it's really a core part of what we do because these individual clinics, they, they own, they're the data custodians, right? But their data in and of itself is actually not valuable on its own, right? It's only valuable when it's in the broader kind of diverse data set that's required to build something that's scalable. So, but it's not fair to go to clinics and ask, beg and steal their data without offering them anything. And they're not actually really incentivized by the money, most of them. So the royalties is more a show of um, collaboration and it's more showing them that we care about building it with them, that we care about bringing them along that whole journey of building and that we care about building products that are actually suited to their clinical environment, built with their expertise and their needs in mind. I think that's more the value of that clinical collaboration model. So as soon as we started doing that, we, um, we got a lot of traction with in terms of getting data and we broken some very early partnerships with a very large US-based group called Ovation Fertility that operate across eight states in the US. Um, amazingly tech forward fertility group and they basically have have springboarded these products and, and given us the um, how do you say, the reputation to bring others on board. So it's, you know, yes, those initial ones are hard, but I think if you get the partnership model right, I think they really genuinely want to be involved and they want to be part of that scientific knowledge creation because they're all scientists, they're all clinical, and they love they love kind of publishing the papers, speaking on behalf of the company at conferences and being involved in, in those product developments. So kind of fits the, I guess, the drivers of the different parties in my mind. Oh, yes, very, very, oh, so much. Yeah, very well done. I'm, yeah, very, very impressed. Um, we have a question from, from Daniel. He's asking about uh, what about the resolution of the images. So what are the, res the resolution of the images for embryo selection? Are the images visible in the light spectrum? Does the technology provide information that the human eye can't see um, due to either size or non-visible light spectrum? A really interesting, interesting question. Um, yeah, is there anything uh, beyond what the eye can see and what is the resolution of the images? Yeah, there's lots. That's a really good question. I'm very technical. Now you're going to test me. Um, no, look, there's so one of the tricks with AI is you want it to be practical to implement clinically, right? In order for it to be practical, you don't want to impose very strict restrictions on the data quality and data collection because if you do that, um, then it becomes very brittle because if people don't follow those instructions very clearly, then the images aren't fit for purpose in the application. So when we first started out, we intentionally built the AI on a varying quality of data. Um, so varying resolutions of the images so that the AI algorithm could learn 
um, from that whole across that whole spectrum of good and poor sort of quality. We do have a minimum resolution is 480 by 480 pixels. It's just very standard resolution. Um, they're images that are taken on an optical light microscope, so there's no specialised imaging equipment. It's just a regular light microscope. And in terms of what the AI sees, yes, it's really interesting. So we have, before we even run the algorithm, when data is uploaded onto our system for analysis, um, we do a whole range of computer vision um, treatments and, and normalisation of those data that happens automatically. We annotate the data. We segment different parts of the embryo that we know are important for survival and viability. One of those parts is the outer rim of the embryo. It's called the zona layer. That's an important predictor of outcome. Um, so we have targeted our AI to look at those features that we know to be important from a biological perspective. And then, of course, there's a brute force kind of AI that that's combined with where the deep learning algorithm looks at very complex patterns of features that you just can't visualise with the human eye. Um, but even those macro level features like the outer rim that I talked about, it's quite interesting because that's something that you can see with the human eye but it's very difficult as a person to cognitively visualise that in the context of tens of thousands of historical cases and whether they resulted in a pregnancy or not. So actually analysing and cognitively analysing those images is very hard for the embryologist. And many of these embryologists have only seen 100 or 200 embryos in their entire career. So, you know, that's where the advantage of the AI is its consistency and knows what it's looking for. It's identifying things you can't see with the human eye, as well as looking at those things that um, we already know to be important. Yeah, and the, and the scale, having seen tens of thousands of, of images um, compared to, as you said, a human being able to see 200, um, that's, that's amazing. I'm maintaining the standard across all that. We have a question from Calvin. Says, as a startup, um, how do you find the business model and get? And, um, how do you, yeah? How do you define your your business model and how do you gain trust from clients? We um, briefly touched on trust, but if you want to um, give us any other thoughts on on business model or trust. Um, yeah, so for that particular product, we do a pay-for-use. So for every treatment cycle that someone goes in, um, they pay an extra um, couple of hundred dollars for the life whisperer um, screening analysis. So it's pay-per-use. And the reason we've done that is that we want this to be accessible to any patient going to any clinic anywhere in the world. So we, it doesn't matter if you're a clinic that only services 50 patients a year or if you're a clinic that services 10,000, um, you can use our product and it's the same price for every patient that comes through. So that's how we've done the business model side. In terms of trust, um, I'll just, I, I think where you're going with that is how do you, how do you get uptake of the technology into the clinical environment um, and get the clinicians to use it for their patients? Whole range of ways, you just need to be around long enough for them to trust you, that's number one, which is kind of non-prescriptive. The second way is making sure that you're, you know, part of the scientific community and presenting at all the, all the scientific conferences because they really care about the science. They care about the clinical evaluation, they care that you publish your clinical studies, um, because that's what gives them trust. And so there's there's those sort of activities that we do as well. It's not it's not kind of a brute force marketing type approach. It's, um, you know, really providing value, bringing those clinics along for the journey, having them trust through being part of that build journey and then also having um, that scientific presence 
um, that gives them that, yeah, that greater level of trust in the system. Very, very true. That's a great way to do it. Uh, we had a comment from Christian saying that um, they have been down the IVF journey multiple times and uh, that they're, they love what you do, Michelle, um, that they, they say it's definitely, definitely a difficult process, has its challenges, and there's, um, in a lot of cases, there's a lot of dependency on having a good doctor. So having better technology and better data back decisions is something that they're really excited about and love seeing. Um, we have a question by, uh, we have another question in the Q&A section says uh, that they heard your background in uh, stem cell biology. How did you divert from academic research uh, in, into starting your own business in AI? Yeah, just, um, <laughs> it, was, it, it was really just a conscious job. I know that sounds crazy, but it just, I, I was a little frustrated with, I, I started inching away from the really base level research very early in my research career because I found it unfulfilling. I found it really interesting. I, I was looking, initially I was looking at receptor signaling. Great. I used to go home and I used to tell my husband, ah, you know, I've spent 12 months working up this experiment and finally I've identified that this protein binds to this receptor. And he's like, wow, that's really interesting, but what does that mean? And I'm like, well, nothing, but it's a breakthrough in our world, right? It's kind of adding that tiny little incremental bit of knowledge to the broader scientific field, which is incredibly important. And for me, that was exciting to a certain point. And then I realised that I actually wanted to impact clinical care. Mm -hmm. And so I started working on research projects that were more translational, identifying gene mutations that could predict response to new treatments, for example. I thought that that was more, you know, closer to reality and clinical use. Um, and so I think I was always naturally sort of gravitating towards that commercialisation path. And then when I had that experience with my first company, just by pure chance, I realised how awesome it is to have an idea, build the thing, and then get people to use it. It's just, it's as simple as that. It's, I've never experienced that before in my research career. And so I, I just really loved that whole commercialization journey and it was something I was really good at and really good at solving complex problems and then breaking them down and building products that are very practical and, and useful and simple. And so I, I just, I guess that's, I just naturally found my passion through, through that process. Amazing. And how, how is it working with your partner? Yeah, <laughs> that's a very general question. <laughs> It's good. We've always like people always ask me this question. It's it is yeah. interesting. It is interesting working with your husband because you share the extreme highs, which is amazing, but you also share the difficulties, right? Which can be very challenging because that's your whole world, right? And you have family together, you work together, you you know, everything that you do is together and that's challenging. But one thing that saved us is, A, it's been 20 years now that we've been working together and so we're just kind of used to it. Um, but the second thing is we've got very complementary skill sets. Uh -huh. So he's very much um, technical and strategy 
product strategy type brain and my background's purely healthcare and I'm kind of a bit of a blend of everything. So, um, you know, the business, the relationships, the the marketing, the science, the um, technology, bringing it all together. I've got a very multidisciplinary outlook. So our roles are very complementary and they're very, our skills are very different. And I think that's why it works because together um, we're just a really amazing kind of combination of of things. And our third co-founder, Jonathan, is kind of the same, very complimentary again, very deep technical mind, but highly strategic kind of technical mind. Mm. And so I think it just works. I I don't know. You just make it work. You find find your place and you make it work. (laughs) No, that's that's amazing. And... and, um, I'll ask you more about the, that combination that you just mentioned about highly technical but still strategic. And um, could you could you uh, elaborate on that or expand uh, for for people that might want to develop uh, those type of skills for for their for their own career? Um, in I find that in data science, it's definitely a, a, always a big push to become more and more technical. But often people lose sight of the of the strategy piece, and they and and sometimes they they might think that that other people, as in like managers, um, technical or business managers, might might have to take on uh, the the strategic piece. But um, how how do you see that people can combine the technical and the strategic component? What what does that mean? And um, yeah, how how uh, any any tips on um, how they can foster that? But also, what does that look like? Um, in having it in one person? Yeah, I think you kind of are that person or you aren't. Um, And I think there's different types of people, some which are very good at the technical and really enjoy just doing that and really don't have a strategic view. And I think it's very hard in those people to build a strategic visionary out of those type of people. And I think that's okay. I think they should stick to their strengths because One of the greatest values that you can create in a company is having a team with mixed skills, right? You don't want everyone that can do everything. You want people who are, you want, you need some people like that, that have the overarching kind of vision for the business that can kind of filter that down. But then you need people who are just good at the AI or just good at the software or just good at the regulatory because otherwise you don't have that depth of skill that you need. So I, I kind of, I think as a person, when you're personally evaluating what you want to do, I think the best thing you can do is get experience across a broad range of things and then identify the things that you're good at and you're passionate about and just go for those and find opportunities that allow you to do those things. You don't need to be everything. You just need to find the thing that you're really good at and that you really enjoy. And that will give you the opportunities that you need. Um, Even, you know, if you want to start your own business, you don't have to be good at everything. You have to do everything initially on your own, and that's challenging. But you can surround yourself with people who have complementary skill sets such that you don't need to do everything yourself. So I think it's just staying true to that because you you kind of can't fake it. You can't pretend to be a strategic visionary if you're not and you can't pretend to be operationally driven if you're a strategic mind you just it's inherent I think in in your brain um so you you need to kind of play to your skills I think that's the best advice that I would give that's really yeah I think that's really good advice and, and definitely um 
uh, we, we, we've obviously we've seen that so work work so well for you in the sense of I feel like you've you've um, you're really good at staying staying true to yourself and and um, and doubling down in your strengths. So that, I think that's great advice. We have a question from Conrad about the uh, data data privacy and ownership. So he's asking who is the owner of the of the data after you acquire the data from providers, and um, how do how was that partnership developed? That's a really good question as well. Actually, we don't we don't own the data. We don't. Uh, we own rights to use the data for certain things, but we we are not a data company and we're intentionally not a data company. We think that's the wrong approach. Mm -hmm. um, the data remains the data of the clinics. They just allow us essentially to use the data for the purposes of building an AI that can then be um, that can then be used for the clinical environment. Um, I guess one of the things that we do do, or one of the things that's important for AI is that continuous kind of learning and, and making the algorithm better over time. So it doesn't learn on the fly, but as we get access to more and more data through the use of the products, we obviously want to make sure that we're making the AI as good as it can possibly be. And so every six to 12 months, we do a retrain based on that larger data set. So we've got permissions to utilise the data for those purposes so that we can constantly improve the products. Um, but we don't take a data ownership position because it's just, a, again, it's another barrier. It's, I don't think it's fair to, I mean, who owns the data anyway? Is it the patient or is it the clinic? Or, yeah. you know, there's a whole kind of data custodianship chain that happens. Yeah. And I think what people have done wrong in the past is they've tried to build these data companies and tried to sell value on the data that they've acquired. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think it's I don't think it's the right approach. I think the approach is to incentivize those who own the data to allow you to utilize it um, because then you get a much more unbiased um, global and very large data access um, you know outcome. And asking them to actually hand over that data is it's very difficult in this space. That's yeah, yeah, that's that's fantastic. That's a really good approach. And and related, related question from, from Claudio. He says, uh, great work, Michelle, inspiring work. Uh, how do you approach the conversation with clinics and embryologists uh, about the AI supporting their work? Uh, when a lot of the narrative about AI at the moment is about AI replacing humans, uh, have you had much much resistance or education to do in that in that section? Um, how do you approach those conversations? Yeah, I think the AI in radiology companies ruined it for the rest of us. <laughs> they very much took an approach of comparing the AI directly to the radiologist. And that's a very adversarial way of positioning AI. And actually, it's not even correct. That's the frustrating thing about it. The AI has no ability to replace a clinical function at this point. What it has the ability to do is strengthen the clinical decisioning by providing another layer of information that's not available to those clinicians. And so when we talk to embryologists about our product, Yes, there is still a lot of resistance um, and there will be for some time to come, but it's getting better. 
But we always say, you know, we are enabling you as an embryologist to make better decisions for your patients by virtue of having more information. This is just another layer of information that you can use in your whole decision process. We're not replacing anything they do. We're just giving them extra information to help them make a better decision. We're providing transparency and value to the patients that they service. We're providing them a competitive advantage in market. We're providing them a new revenue stream for creating, uh, for utilising new products that they have a small margin um, on. There's a whole range of kind of ways that we soften that interaction. And it's not it's not a marketing ploy. It's actually what the product does. It's decision support. It's not an automated embryo assessment tool. This is just one piece of information that they use in the context of their whole clinical journey with the patient. So that's kind of how we've approached it. And I think it's the right approach. I think it's yeah. a lot less threatening to them. Um, but I think, yeah, that's some of the challenge in the industry with AI. And it's one of the reasons why people are very adversarial with the um, AI versus clinician, because that's how it's been kind of posited. Yes, but definitely the, the wrong approach. Yeah, the, your, your partnership and decision support approaches is much, much better, much more realistic. Uh, so you're definitely getting the value from AI while avoiding the hype, uh, which which I really like about your your approach. And I wanted to ask you, um, what what is occupying your mind these days? As in, like, what what are, what type of things? Obviously, things that you can share. But what type of things uh, are, are you working on uh, about the the next stage of the company? Um, and and what's what's occupying your your time and your mind share on on what's coming up next? That's a very scary question to ask. What's what's occupying your mind? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> no, look, it's um we're at a really interesting stage in our company. So we're in a massive growth stage. We've got a product, our life whisperer product is now improved in two-thirds of the world's markets. We've got um, wow. clinics using this all around the world, but only you know, small numbers of clinics. So we're just on that massive expansion. Um, we've got future products that we've envisaged. We've got at least three already in the pipeline from the Christian platform. So we're constantly creating and, and building new products. Um, we're raising capital at the moment. So we're doing a series A round, which is a very significant size round. Right. Um, and that will allow us to really expand globally. So we've already got a presence in Silicon Valley and London. We've got subsidiaries in those areas so i feel like it's a really interesting time in our business because we've set everything up we've got the product first product built we've got a whole pipeline of really interesting um, and commercially valuable products we've got an amazing platform and now it's our time to really scale and grow so it's really cool time for us so exciting so exciting and um I wanted to to ask you maybe maybe uh maybe it is a tough question as well, uh, but I wanted to ask you about um, kind of like looking back in your uh, your career so far with everything that you've done. Uh, what what are you most proud of? If you if you look back, is there is there something that stands out more more than some than others, and and what would that be? I think I've just seen a comment come up from Conrad actually on the chat. And he just hit the nail on the head. I think what I'm most proud of, because I've been asked this question a lot and I can't think of one particular thing that I'm really proud of, except that I think I've really leveraged all of my skills um, in a way that, in a really effective way that's allowed 
um, me along with my team to build this amazing company. So I think it's kind of I've continuously learned and honed those skills and worked out what's important to me and understood what I really want to be doing. I'm incredibly passionate about it, as you can probably tell. Um, and I, you know, I just feel like I've found my place, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I, I've, I think it's the way that I've leveraged my background and my skills and continuously learn over time that is probably what I'm most proud of. Yeah, well, that is definitely something that you do exceedingly well and definitely something to be proud of. I'm, I've been yeah, impressed by your breadth and your um, very high bandwidth. <laughs> so to be able to, to juggle uh, so many things across, across so many domains uh, for, for your business and, and to, to achieve your goals and bring this technology to, to life and to be able to help people with it, that is it, it just, I can, I can only imagine, you know, how much, how much effort and dedication and perseverance that, that takes. And uh, now you're, you're doing exceedingly well and definitely an, an inspiration and, and great to see, you know, a Australian technology that is, is being used all over the world. Uh, that's, that's definitely a, 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 something that needs to be shared more, right? It's, it's such, a, such a great, great story and everything that you're accomplishing. It's, it's impressive. So, but you do, but you do know. Thank you for those kind words. But you do know that I'm not a single person. That I have an amazing team, <laughs> and yeah. so I feel a bit like you know this environment where you do these podcast interviews are, you know, it's it's very focal on the individual that you're interviewing. Mm-hmm. And I am the CEO of the company, but I've got an amazing team behind me that is and alongside me that that work to make this happen. So it's really a collective effort. It's definitely not my brain that <laughs> that kind of deals with all of those um, all of those different aspects. I have a very good view across everything in the business as I need to, but um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of support from an amazing team. Incredible. Yeah, that is. Um... I think that is a uh, fantastic note to end on. I was just looking at the time, and I can't believe this this hour flew flew <laughs> by. Um, Michelle, I want to I want to thank you so much. Uh, uh, your 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 journey, all your work, as I mentioned, uh, really incredible. A lot of a lot of excellent uh, comments, or a lot of comments thanking you and and saying how pe- how impressed people are with with every all the work that you and your companies are doing. Uh, amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your, your journey with us. Uh, best of luck. Please keep going. Uh, I know obviously uh, you, may, you may not need uh, encouragement, but as you can see, um, myself and the audience are loving what you're doing. Uh, so thank you for doing that, that great work. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on the line. And thanks to everyone who's contributed to the Q&A in the chat. And if you want to connect me on LinkedIn, I'm very open to kind of building networks. And yeah, good luck to everyone. Amazing. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Have an excellent day. See you for the next episode. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.